0: be in Matthew 19 I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 15 this morning and here we go and it came about that when Jesus had finished these words he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there and some Pharisees came to him testing him and saying is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, there are no, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given." For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So let's pray. Father, you are all wisdom and all knowledge, and we come to you as your children wanting to learn and hear the word today and i pray god as jackie unpacks this difficult pack this difficult passage lord i just pray that it would fall on ears eager to hear and hearts willing to change father i also want to lift up our children this morning as they go to their sunday school classes Father, I pray for the teachers who are so diligently involved in training the next generation. And I pray these children would fall in love with you, Jesus, as we have, and that they would grow someday to the full stature of men and women. And so, God, we we just come before you now to hear your word and to be challenged and trained by it. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Young people, you are excused.
1: Oh, God is great, isn't He? <clears throat> it is, uh important for us as we come to the text of scripture to remind ourselves what has authority in our life? The word of God? Is it the word of doctors, philosophers? Is it the word of state? Where does authority lie in your life? Those are important things for us to answer because you may discover some of the challenge that you have in walking in obedience to God's word is, is, uh, who says, where is your ultimate authority? For most people, ultimate authority lies in self. my power to reason and deduct. And so we stay firmly on that until we run into things and we realize, oh, my, my reasoning is not consistent. Does anybody have perfectly consistent reasoning? wish I did. I know that there are things. I'm bent. I'm not a straight stick. I'm crooked. Part of the effects that the Scripture tells us, right? The Scripture lays out for us that all men are sinners, that we, since the fall of Adam, have uh, been born with a nature that has a desire to rebel against God, and one of the areas that that's become so uh, clear is whenever we talk about God's plan and purpose for marriage. And when we come to Matthew 19, it's interesting because the scribes and the Pharisees, experts on the law, are coming to Jesus with what they consider to be an unanswerable question. No matter what he chooses, he loses. You ever felt trapped like that? Come on, fellas. You know when your wife comes walking out and says, does this dress make me look fat? That's a trap. That's a trap. Don't step in it. There have been a few times my wife has come to me with these traps. Like here's one she did the other day. We were somewhere and she said, don't you think so-and-so is pretty? <laughs> I'm not answering this question. I, I'm not playing this game. I'm not going to step into this trap. 40 years of marriage will do that for you. You start to recognize, I wish the first five years I knew that because that would have saved me a lot of grief. Well, they're trying to trap Jesus this way. Now, we don't know it because, you know, we're 2,000 years later and we look at this and, and a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this issue and, and uh, we're just going to focus on what Jesus said and, and why it's important that he goes further back than what they do. There were two schools of thought in that day, primarily two rabbinical schools, Hillel and Shemai, who looked at this question and had a variety of answers. And so whoever you pick, you're going to alienate the other half. You with me? So whatever you do, Jesus, you're, you're going, somebody's getting alienated. We're going to bring down some of this popularity that has been heaped around him. We're about six months from the cross. So we're we're coming down the, the final stretch and they come to Jesus. It says in verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, so we just finished Matthew 18 last week and the things that he discussed there and I'm going to ask you to remember Matthew 18 when Jesus brought the child forward, right? The idea of Unless you become like this child, you won't see the kingdom of God talking about men wanting to lord it over others and the willingness to forgive. None of this is accidental. As Matthew's putting together his book, he's building on this concept as he moves into the next story. He says he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he's now in the area where John the Baptist was ministering. He's now out in the Judean, what they call the Judean wilderness, which is desert. So what, for me, that was always a problem because wilderness, my brain always sounded like the woods. So I would go to Israel and they say, you're in the wilderness. And I'd say, this is not the wilderness. This is the desert. God forsaken desert. <laughs> like I know we in Beal, you guys hear me say this all the time. We, we go, we're high desert. You guys don't know what the desert is. <laughs> yeah. The desert that I was living in has no water. No such thing as, oh, we have irrigation, we have so many inches of water. There's no water. No water. The fishing game, there's actually a fishing game office in Yucca Valley that's there to count the fish in the creek, Yucca Creek, which has never had water in it. The entire life I've lived, they're supposed, to, they're supposed to count the fish. And they're getting paid <laughs> to count fish in a, in a creek that has no water in it. Anyway, that's the wilderness in the Bible. So they're in the wilderness of Judea and the Jordan. And a large crowd is following him. And as Jesus did, he was filled with compassion. And he would heal them as they brought their sick to him. And the Pharisees come to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the, the question is framed in the school of Hillel. In the school of Hillel, the, the teaching was, you could divorce your wife for any reason. Bad cooking. She gained too much weight. Akiba, one of his disciples, said, If you find a woman prettier, you could divorce your wife. This is the school of Hillel. The school of Shammai, he said, You could only divorce your wife for sexual immorality. So these are the two schools that are being brought forth. And what they're making this statement on is Deuteronomy 24. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 24 so we understand what, uh, what the Lord gave to Moses. It says in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, when we come to these texts, and we've had opportunity as Calvary Chapel Buell, we read our Bibles every day, right? We're discipling men to have a daily time in word and prayer, so we're spending time in the word, we're going through the one-year Bible, and we read texts like Deuteronomy 24, or Leviticus, or Numbers, or Judges, and we go through those Old Testament texts, And we don't understand the context. And so we sometimes get confused about what is God saying? What's going on? Why is a woman defiled if she marries another man? What makes her unable to go back? What are these rules that God has laid out for divorce? And when we look at that, we're thinking like the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus isn't. He gives us clarification. He doesn't play by their rules. In Matthew 24, here's what was going on. Divorce was rampant, just like it is today. Divorce was rampant, and people were getting divorced for a number of reasons. And if they felt like they didn't have a good enough reason, they would make an accusation to the spouse that they (coughs) had proclaimed before God that they would be with. They would bring up charges, maybe of infidelity, and then their spouse would be killed just so they could be loose, so they could be free. And their culture and their... Society was being torn apart by this sinful attitude. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is an effort to control the sin that was cut loose in the people. In other words, this is God saying, whoa, whoa, what are you guys doing? Let's not do this. Let's stop. I'm going to give you a writ of divorce, which is to combat the sinful nature that is already in the heart of man. Do You guys know man is deceitful and wicked? I know we say that. Let me, let me do this. Do you know that you are deceitful and wicked? I don't know if we all know that. We should probably square that away. We are deceitful and wicked. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, is God giving to us a way to control our sinful attitudes about marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is a concession to control sin. It is a permission. I want you to remember, uh, well, let's take a look at what they say in verse 4. So Jesus is going to answer them. Jesus is going to do something they weren't anticipating. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Jesus goes before the fall. Jesus goes all the way back to God's intent for marriage. Before sin entered in, and before the hardness of hearts entered in and before the crookedness of man entered in. And he said, here is God's intent for marriage. The scribes and the Pharisees are trying to build an ethic on a permission to control sin in the community. And Jesus goes back to the intention. This is not... This is not how it's supposed to be. Well, this is how men's hearts are, but this is how it was intended when God made man and woman. They are no longer two. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So this is the original plan of God. This is how God instituted marriage and when we talk about the institution of marriage we need to understand we live in a world that the where the state thinks they're in control of marriage well the state did not make marriage marriage is not a, a social construct because uh, trust me if you left it alone to just society nobody'd be married do you pay attention to your world today Nobody's looking for that kind of a commitment, that kind of everybody's thinking about self, 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 self. What do I want? What do I get out of this? What's this how does this work for me? You you are a product. You and I are a product of whatever it is, 30 years of feminism. You and I are a product of the war of the sexes. You and I and the way we think, it's twisted, it's not straight. And because our mind is twisted, we're always looking for reasons why it's okay to get divorced. Why is it okay to break this covenant? And Jesus goes back to the beginning. And when he does this, there's a lot of things that he does. First, he says this, marriage has its origin in God, not the state. I don't care what the state says. I don't care what laws they pass, what declarations they make. Marriage has its origin in God. And as such, God being the originator of marriage is also the definer of it. Oftentimes people will say, you know, Jesus never really said anything against homosexuality. But he did define marriage. Didn't he? He defined exactly what it was. He goes here and he says, uh, marriage has its origin in God. It predates government. Before there were any government, before there was societies, before there was a culture, there was marriage. He created the heavens and the earth, man and woman, and the very next thing he did was make marriage. Don't think that's important? Before the fall, there was marriage. Before there was ever failure of any kind, there was marriage. In the beginning, Garden of Eden, perfection. There was marriage. Marriage is not a product of the fall. Deuteronomy 24 is a product of the fall. Jesus goes pre-fall, pre-government, pre-civilization, even predates all social constructs. It's initiated by God in creation before the fall. Marriage is based on two genders. Ladies and gentlemen... I no, this is an unpopular opinion. But there are only two genders. The only way you come up with 592 genders or gender studies or gender professors is because you have too much time, too much money, too much of a lot of things, and you sit around and you look at yourself and contemplate self eternally, And in your eternal contemplation of self, you have come up with crazy ideas. The Bible defines the two genders as male and female. Gender is a biological fact. Okay, you might feel a lot of ways. That's feelings. But there are two genders. And marriage is made up of Two opposite genders, male and female, period. God defined it, God built it, God constructed it, God put it together. Jesus is the one who says, this is how he made them, male and female. And a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's it, period. This is God's definition of marriage. Marriage is created to be heterosexual. What was taken from the side of Adam is joined to Adam to make him one, unified. It's a picture, ultimately, of a relationship in God that there is within husband and wife, the kind of unity that there is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that unity cannot be accomplished outside of God's created intent. It doesn't doesn't matter how we feel or the struggles we have are outside of that. All of those things come post-fault. Prefall, this is intention, this is purpose, this is plan, this is why the enemy wants to attack that which it was from the beginning. He wants to tear that down. In the great Shema, scripture declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord Yahweh, He is Echad. He's one. And for this reason, The man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife and the two shall become echad. The same way husband and wife, the union of husband and wife, the unity pre-fall husband and wife is a picture of the unity of God. And since the fall, it has been under fire. In a hundred ways. And most of that is caused by us, our bend. But we'll get, that, we'll get to that in just a minute. Marriage is based on the decision of a man to be committed to his wife. It is intended to be monogamous. After the fall, that was not always the case, was it? Does the Bible talk about uh, multiple wives? Do we see multiple wives throughout the Bible? Yeah. When do we see it? Post-fall. What happened? Well, man's sinful the Bible's not going to lie about what men did it's going to tell you the truth about what they did but then how could how could God bless if these guys are sinful if God's requirement for blessing was there would be no we would never have any blessing we live in a sinful fallen corrupt world And God pours out his grace. That's why they call it grace, because it's unmerited. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to earn it. It's God's love that he pours out his grace. The Bible tells us the rain falls on the wicked and the good. The rain is God's blessing. It's poured out on all. God's grace showering down. Those things are a product of sinful nature, but not as it was intended to be. Jesus doesn't choose either of the two schools of thought. He goes back to God's creation and says, this is what marriage is supposed to be. This is how marriage is supposed to look. In other words, I'm not going to argue about all the messed up parts of marriage. Anybody got a messed up marriage? Well, let's do this. I don't want you to have to confess Anybody know someone with a messed up marriage? The Lord says, look, I'm not going to choose which form of messed up marriage is better. I want to focus on the intent. What is the intent? Marriage, finally, marriage is based on a dependency, a dependency for unity to be one. This is going to matter when we get toward the end of our section today. In order to have unity, you must have humility. Why is there no unity or less unity in marriages today? Because you're not walking in humility. We are walking in pride, right? Uh, if we just, just do a breakdown of every marital fight you've ever had. And I promise you, both of you are acting in pride. But in the Godhead, there is no pride, is there? The, the Father fulfills his purpose, the Son, his purpose, the Spirit, his purpose, in complete harmony, in perfect unity. Because not, not one or the other is vying for power over all. And in the unity that is God, we have a head. His name is God the father and we have a part of god that is submitted to the father that is the part is a bad word so don't I mean, most of you guys won't care but theologically that's a bad word sorry but there is the son who is an example of submission in unity with the father He's one. I'm not saying less than. That's your brain that says submission makes you less than. That's not God's. You have the Holy Spirit, another picture of of submission sent by the Son to the lives of believers to empower them to be who God has intended for them to be. This is all the perfect picture. We come, you and I, we sit down and we have these debates about marriage and divorce. And so let me, let me help you. We'll jump a little bit ahead. Let me, let me quiet your ruffled spirit. Marriage, uh, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Will God forgive you for divorce? Yes. God will forgive you for divorce. Is God's intent. was God's original intent that there would ever be a divorce. No, never. It was never his intent. Sometimes life in a fallen world does not follow the prescribed direction of God. Sometimes people get divorced. Sometimes they have a good reason and sometimes they don't. But all of that is a picture of the fall, not God's intent. It is a picture of the twistedness of man that corrupts the beauty of what God has given. And as with any sin, it needs to be repented of and forgiven. Now, usually... When we talk about repentance in the realm of divorce, people say, well, then what am I supposed to do? Well, you heard what Deuteronomy said, didn't you? God would not have you break a current covenant to honor a previous covenant. God would have you repent of breaking the first. Sometimes, especially in Idaho, you have no control over that. Idaho's a one-party state. All it requires is one person to go to the courthouse and sign one piece of paper. It's the easiest place on earth that I know of to get divorced. So sometimes those things are outside of our control. God forgives and God will bless and we can move on. Don't be trapped by the thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees recognize that that God has a bigger plan taking place. Look what they say in verse 7. So they said to him, why did Moses, look at the word. I don't want you to miss the word. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Was Deuteronomy 24 a command? No, Deuteronomy 24 was permission." Do you know the difference between a command and permission? If you don't, Jesus is going to explain it in the very next verse. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what word did Jesus use? Allowed. What word did they use? Command. Because they're more concerned with how do I make myself look righteous in all of this? How do I make myself look righteous in this broken relationship? How do I make myself look righteous? Their focus is where? On themselves. Their focus is is their own pride. Their, Their focus is their own claim to righteousness. And we in the church should have surrendered that claim to righteousness long ago when the scripture told us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Right? Whose righteousness do we need? We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. I can't conjure my own righteousness. Now, do I want to walk in obedience? Yes. And the Bible tells me, as a righteous man, I will fail. What does Proverbs say? A righteous man will fall Seven times a day. So the concept is not to count how many times you're falling. by the way. That's not, it's immaterial. The point is, there will be failure of obedience. And as a righteous man, who is a wise man, I will confess, repent, and rise again. Amen? And then we continue forward. There... Desire is to express upon themselves, I'm righteous. I'm the right one in this divorce. I'm the right one in this broken relationship. I'm the right one in this broken whatever, the, all the things. And it's trying to find a way to make an argument that says, well, I'm, I'm right. I was right. And when we look at that, here's, here's what God cares about. God cares about the brokenness. He's not trying to prove who's right. He already knows he's right. And I don't know. I mean, there are ways, right? I, I'm not trying to make a hard, fast statement of, but the reality is, we're not never right. I, every time, even if I've even if I've had a right to say X to someone, my heart has been wrong, so I'm wrong. You know what I mean? So it's Jesus expressing to the people, look, what's really necessary in a a disciple of Jesus Christ is to follow him in humility and not in pride. What are all the disciples arguing about? We're going to read it in the next several chapters about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Jesus has already said the greatest is the servant of all. Who is he? He's the servant of all, isn't he? He came to give his life a ransom, right? And so we have the example, the the humble king. They're arguing in the Gospel of John, who's the greatest? I'm better than you. I I answered this question when Jesus asked it right. No, no, no. He always lets me walk right next to him, so I'm better than you. When all that's going on, Jesus gets up, takes off his robe, girds a towel, grabs a basin of water, and washes their feet something that they would not stoop to do for each other for all the tea in China. But our God did that. He wants us to walk in humility. Moses allowed you to divorce. It's a permission, not a command. It has been said, this statement I found interesting, hard cases make bad law. This is not law. This is allowance. It was not a command of Moses, thou shalt divorce your wife because she's unclean. That's not how it was. But that's how people were running with it. The scribes and the Pharisees are making Deuteronomy 24 case law. Jesus makes Genesis chapter 2. Jesus goes back. He says, "This this is where we'll develop case law. This is where we'll see. We don't look for ethical norms in areas of legal text dealing with something that's already wrong. We go before it so that we can see his purpose. The permission Moses gave did not nullify God's plan for marriage. Here's another way of thinking about it. Permission of behavior after our brokenness is not the ground for kingdom ethics. Permission of behavior after brokenness is not the ground for kingdom ethics. The the things that are done (laughs) to slow down our destructive nature These divorces happen then as now because of hardness of heart. That's why divorce happens. I know there's probably lots of justifiable reasons in a lot of people's minds. I'm sure there are many people here who have been divorced. As I said, divorce is not an unforgivable sin, but divorce occurs because of hardness of heart because of an unwillingness to uh, hear from God. In Hebrews 3, verse 7 through 8, it says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. When we are rebelling against God, our hearts get hard, and you won't hear his voice. The example in Hebrews chapter three is the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? Their hearts are hardened. They, they don't believe they can enter into the promised land. God won't be able to deliver us. We look at that and they, we say, how in the world could they ever feel that way? Well, the point is when your heart is racked with sin and bitterness and it grows hard, you won't hear God no matter what. You've all heard people say that you believe to be good, solid believers. You've heard them say, Things you could not reckon. You're like, why would they say that? How can they feel that way? Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your heart. How are hearts hardened? Hebrews 3.13 says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because the sin, in particular, when we're talking about struggles in marriage, the sin is the sin of pride. And the deceitfulness of pride will harden our hearts so that we can't hear God who's trying to speak, who wants to speak into us, but we're putting up a hand. I, I can't hear you. I've, I've The other day I was going through the attic here and I found an old photo album from the very first marriage retreat we ever did. And all the people that were at the retreat, many of them are, are still here. But the sad thing going through all those pictures was turning the page and saying, they're divorced. turn the page, they're divorced. turn the page, they're divorced. Now there were many who aren't, who are still here, but there were many who are. Everyone didn't make it. And what led to the hardness of heart was the deceitfulness of sin. I'm right. I'm telling you I'm right. And they're wrong. And, and so we get this. Every, if anybody who's ever done marriage counseling knows that all a marriage counselor is, I don't care how many licenses they got, is someone wearing a black and white shirt with a whistle. And they're supposed to blow the whistle and point out who's right or who's wrong. Well, that's not how marriage counseling ought to be done. But that's what it feels like. That's how it feels. Why? Because pride is in the way. And all that pride going, bouncing around the room, there's so much, there's plenty of pride to go around and you can't hear. Your hearts have been hardened. Hebrews 3.15 says, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. How do we defeat the deceitfulness of sin? Repent. Repent from your pride. Repent from your ungodly attitude. Repent from the strife in your marriage. Repent. We defeat sin by calling it what it is. Not by coddling it, not by snuggling up to it, not by picking it, not by thinking about how good it looks on you. We defeat sin by confessing, right? Confess your sins one to another, Bible says. Confess your sins. Confess your sins to God. If you don't have, trust me, if you, don't just walk to your neighbor and start confessing your sins, okay? But if you've got a brother or a sister in your life that is, Someone who is, uh, that you can count on, you can confess your sins and have the accountability so that what we read in Hebrews 3.13 can take place. Remember, we are called to exhort one another every day. Who have you exhorted today? That's not just a verse for me. That doesn't just say, Jackie, exhort someone today. It's for us, exhort someone every day. Do you know someone struggling? Call them up and say, I was thinking about you today. I'm praying for you. You know how encouraging that is? It will radically transform your life and the one you're reaching out to. Every day you want to see your brothers and sisters not stumble in the deceitfulness of sin, then you reach out and exhort them. I have brothers who do that for me, and I love it all the time. Now, I'm not a great texter. Anybody ever text me? <laughs> Jordan doesn't like to text me no more. <laughs> Isaac texts, he knows. <clears throat> you text me, and if and this is not always, this, this is not a hard, fast rule, but if there's not a question at the end, you don't get a response all the time from me, right? Of the people who are still angry about it are shaking their head. Destiny, destiny's mad at me every time. <clears throat> so I, I read the text. I'm maybe thankful. Sometimes I'll say, "Hey, thanks," but most of the time I'm running and gunning. So I'm, I go through it. I go, "Okay, that's it's, it's not something I need to, to run or go do or go run over to or whatever, whatever my whatever my reasoning is for my own pride," and uh, and I, so I, so I don't, I don't always respond to to those texts, but those texts that I get, so I get them at least a couple times a week from brothers in the church who just text me and say, I'm praying for you. That's really encouraging to me. So just in case I've never texted you back, it encourages me. And if we'll do that for one another, won't it encourage us as well? So he's exhorting us. How are we going to defeat the hardness of the deceitfulness of the hardness of our hearts in sin? We're going to exhort one another. We're going to reach out to one another. We're going to talk to one another. Stop living in your little private bubble that you don't want to let anybody in. I know if you get outside your bubble, somebody's going to stomp on your toes. Okay? It's all right. It's going to happen. We live in a fallen, broken world, right? But the blessing will outweigh the little pain. I promise. The blessing will outweigh the pain. So Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, what is adultery? Most of the time when we think about adultery, we're just thinking about the sexual parts of adultery, right? Adultery is is having sex with someone you're not married to or someone else's wife or someone else's husband, what have you. So let me give you a better working definition of adultery. Adultery is unfaithfulness. That's a better definition because the Lord's going to declare Israel to be an adulterous affair against him. And what he means is, you're not faithful to me. And unfaithfulness includes being sexually unfaithful, right? But when we look at the text and we say, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another is unfaithful to the covenant of marriage. Because that's not how God originally intended it. Do you know that God forgives unfaithfulness? Do you know how I know he forgives unfaithfulness? Have you ever read the book of Hosea? (laughs) Hosea, God says to Hosea, Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Seems like a bad plan. If If you're looking for a happy marriage, it's not probably the way to do it, right? So he goes and marries a prostitute. She is unfaithful, runs away. And then God says, Hosea, in this story, you're me. And that prostitute is you. The people of Israel are unfaithful to me, but I want you to go get her back. She doesn't deserve it, but I want you to go and you buy her. She was so far down the road that she was a slave, human trafficking. She had no value on her life. She was worth half the value of a slave gored by an ox. It's a weird thing for me to remember, but it's something that I remember. So it's not, she's not very much. I think it's 15 pieces of silver. Jesus was ransomed. Jesus, they paid 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave gored by an ox. She's worth half that. And he goes and he buys her. And then he doesn't, he doesn't come to her and say, now you're going to follow the rules now, missy. You know what he says to her? I'm giving you everything. You're not going to be my wife. You're my wife. Every every right that you had as my wife, everything, I'm just giving it to you. (laughs) God forgives unfaithfulness. But we have to stop making excuses for our unfaithfulness and trying to put ourselves like those scribes and Pharisees, like, can I be justified? Can I be justified? No, it's, it's all part of sin. Sin has wrecked marriages right and left. Amen? And it doesn't have to, but it's our hardness of heart. So we need to be men and women who are encouraging one another so that it's not. And we need to recognize when Jesus says, if you've been divorced for any reason outside of sexual immorality, you are unfaithful to the marriage covenant. When you got married, somewhere you stood before someone and they said these words. You're making a covenant before God and these people. It's part of been part of the marriage ceremony forever. And if you break it, then you are unfaithful to the covenant. And he gives a clause for sexual immorality. except It doesn't mean you have to. That's not a command. That's allowance. That's permission. It was not always supposed to be so. Now listen to the disciples missed the point. We're wrapping it up. The disciples say, well, if that's the case, it's better not to get married. What? You guys are knuckleheads. So... If marriage is hard, it's better not to get married because nobody ever wants to do anything hard. My goodness. Some, th- some things I read, I just want to slap people. <laughs> this is a big old giant wine. I know, trust me, I know, I do it too. Just other things. Like, this is, this is my thing. I'm in a crowded room and there's somebody I don't know on the other side of the room hard to talk to them. I want to stay in this corner over here with people I already know because it's hard to go over there. That's what I do. That's why God gave me Kathy. Because <laughs> there ain't nobody Kathy don't know. She knows everybody everywhere whatever room. We walk into a room in a, you know, she don't know anybody and she will meet 75 people while we're in there. So I say these words, we all have our struggles, right? Our, our personality flaws. They say, if such is a case of a man and a wife, if it's, if no matter what you do, you're never supposed to get divorced and then that's just too hard. It's better not to marry. Okay. So Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying. He's not talking about what he said about marriage being permanent. He's talking about what the disciples just said. In Greek, there's something called the nearest antecedent. We go back to the nearest antecedent and we understand he's pointed the pointer in the grammar of the Greek is to what the disciples said. Everybody can't handle not being married. Right? Paul would write, it's better to wed than burn with passion. You know? Something to be said for that. He's saying, this is what he's saying. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He's saying, look, singleness is a gift from God, not something you should try to practice if you've not been given that gift. This is why there are so many problems in Roman Catholicism with the priesthood, which demand celibacy of men who don't have a gift of celibacy. Right? Jesus is saying, not everyone can do this, only those to whom it is given. Look at verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Instead of the word eunuch, just say single person for now. Until he says there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs. Then you don't have to say single person. Okay, but basically the idea is there are people who are eunuchs from birth. They they never got married, don't want to get married. It's not something that they've had to struggle with. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's okay. Everybody don't have to be you. Right? We have freedom for that? There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That's the one you're thinking of, yes, with the big hammer. That's too far. (laughs) Just so you know, that's Daniel. That was Daniel when he was 16. Anyway, we'll go on. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs, so he never gets married. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. There are people who will make the commitment to stay single because they're so focused in the ministry. Jesus gives these three, that's it. He said, everybody can't handle being single. Most people have a desire to be married. So Jesus gives them a, a quick a, a quick uh, explanation of, of why it's not better everybody just stay single forget about marriage because marriage is too hard and then he does something i don't want you to miss this picture and then it says then children were brought to him remember the children before then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray but the disciples rebuked the people oh stop stop we're having a big discussion on marriage and singleness and the kids we don't need the kids and jesus is like "Stop, stop bring me the kids Why is he doing it? Because Jesus loves kids? Probably, yes, he loves kids. But that's not the only reason. He already made the point about children as a picture of humility and low station. And so he's saying, look, if you want to understand how to make marriage not to be so hard, then let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he puts his hands on them and he blesses them. Because children are a picture, even the word that's used for children in the text, the same word for servant, children are are a picture of the lowest station in in the society of the day. So children were down here. They weren't the most important thing. Most important thing was probably scribes and Pharisees. Children way down here. Don't interrupt the adults when they're talking, you know, all the stuff that people said about kids. And so Jesus is taking those kids and not saying, look, these kids are perfect and they're sinless. No, he's not saying any of that. He's saying these people, these kids are humble. They're a picture of humility. You want to have the marriage that God wants you to have. You need to be like a little child. You need to be low in your own eyes. Ephesians chapter 5, the Lord says, Wives, Submit yourself unto your husbands. I know nobody likes to talk about it. And I can do semantics, but submit means submit. Or be low in your own eyes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Or be low in your own eyes. You're not the most important thing in the story. And if you will walk in humility, you can have the marriage God intended, even though we're crooked sticks. You can have it. And if you failed in the past, it's all right. God forgives us of our failures and he will raise us up. and. And then we move forward with him, right? And we say, okay, Lord, I want to be low in my own eyes. Every single marriage counseling appointment I've ever had, and I don't do many anymore. Most of them go to Mark now. I've retired. Well, I'm not really retired, but you know what I mean. Every one of them, the bottom line is pride. And the pride is in both parties. And unless those parties will repent of their pride, lay down their lives, be obedient to the ultimate authority of God's word, their marriage will be a struggle from now to the day they either quit or see Jesus. You don't have to be miserable. You don't have to suffer. You have to die. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen. That's a good place. Why don't you guys stand with me let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. Your word is true and men are crooked. Every man's a liar. Lord, we know sometimes we come to teachings and they're hard teachings and they're difficult teachings and we want to we wanna live in the world of Deuteronomy where we get a bunch of rules on, well, how should we treat our slaves? He's not asking whether or not you should have them in the first place. The ethic doesn't come after the brokenness, it comes before. Now we're just dealing with the world that is. And our world is broken and twisted and messed up and upside down and right is wrong and wrong is right and everything is a little topsy-turvy and it's infiltrated into the church too because we're taking the ultimate authority of God's word and we're giving it somewhere else. We are men and women who have made a decision to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And following Jesus means obedience to his word. Comprehending what he is saying, laying down my life, setting aside my pride, confessing my sin, not thinking more highly of myself than I ought, but considering others more important. man, Lord, you you have laid out so many incredible things. We look at the Sermon on the Mount and we say, oh, the, the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is so unattainable. It's not unattainable. It's God's original intent. It's just hard if you're full of pride. It's hard if your heart is hardened against the voice of God. And you don't want to hear what he has to say anymore because it, goes against your reasoning or someone else's. Lord, I just pray that we would come together in an attitude that says, I know there's more to marriage than is even in my marriage. I know you are able to make it everything that it can be. I have watched a man expected to die in bed, and I have watched that same man walk. If you can give life to that which looks dead, you can give life to our marriages, our families, our relationships. But that can't flow through the hardness of my heart. My heart must be broken before God. I must confess that I am a sinner. And I don't make excuses for my pride and my sinfulness. I just take him to God with open hands and ask him if he would cleanse it. Help me walk in love. Help me walk in obedience. Help me walk in righteousness. The battle against pride is eternal. It's why it tops the list of the things God hates. There was a day when in the heart of Satan blossomed pride. I will exalt my throne above the most high. God, I pray that you would help us, equip us, convict us. That we would be uh, men and women walking in the beauty and the power supplied by your Holy Spirit to be who you're calling us to be. I pray for those who uh, have been convicted this morning that they would find someone to pray with this morning. be forgiven, to be washed clean, to begin anew. I pray for marriages that are struggling, that you would pour out your spirit in such a way that the struggle would stop. I pray, Lord, that um, believers would look to you for the solution, not to a book, not to a system, to a Savior. And I pray, God, you be glorified in and through it all. In Jesus' name, amen.